So we've been going through this series of the Lord's Prayer, and the big idea we're trying to get across is that the Lord's Prayer should be understood alongside this idea of the fatherhood of God. Um, it, there are six clauses that you could, if you had sort of like a list, just work through and try to understand, okay, how do these six things, you know, how, how are they understood independently? But what we want you to really focus on through this series is that really they're more like a snowball. It starts with our Father, and then it flows from there so that every clause should be seen within the larger frame of the fatherhood of God. And every week I've read the quote from J.R. Packer writing on the fatherhood of God when he says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. And we've been trying to figure out why it's been hard for us to really, really grasp in, in, in transformative, deep ways, what it means to have God as our Father. We talked through the different clauses of His name, how He wants to be known particularly. We talked about His kingdom. And today, uh, the focus is, is the clause that says, um, your will be done. And the big idea is that it's, it's our Father's will. Um, and I want to talk about really three, three things when it comes to that. Um, why it's hard to pray, your will be done, um, but why it's worth it, and then moving from why it's worth it to how we do it. Uh, but before that, just some opening thoughts when we come discussions about God's will. And uh, the reality about God's will is for, for many of us, it's relegated to just big life transition categories. We, we, we're not too interested in, in discussions about God's will until all of a sudden, you know, there's a prospect of um, a job option, a cross-country move, or a possible romantic partner. And then all of a sudden we're like, what is God's will? Tell me, God. Tell me your will. And I, I want to tell you, I'm going to tell you God's will this morning. I'm going to make it very clear. My one outcome, my one teaching outcome is for you to be like, when you walk out of this place, to say, you know what? I know God's will for my life. Because he actually makes it very, very clear and he does so in a letter to a church um, through, to one of the early churches. And we can find it on page 928. I want to be very, very clear. First Thessalonians, if you're having trouble finding uh, First Thessalonians, it comes right after uh, General Electric Pepsi-Cola, which you've heard me say before. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then we're in the Thessalonians. Okay, and this is like for all the questions of what is God's will for my life, the book tells us. It says, uh, starting at verse one of chapter four, finally then, brothers, sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through, uh, through the Lord Jesus. Here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And I want to say this is sort of like one, what does that mean? Um, but but just, some, just some quick notes about how that challenges us in the present. When Paul writes, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, we have to see how it challenges one, first and foremost, our present ambitions. Because Paul doesn't write, for this is the will of God the multiplication of your net worth. 
For this is the will of God, the success of your present venture. For this is the will of God, the experience of the perfect romantic partner. Oh, it reads, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And it not only challenges our present ambitions, we'll get specific about what it means that his project is our sanctification, but but it not only challenges our present ambitions, what we're aiming for, but it also challenges the way we understand um, the underlying assumptions of how we view life and reality. Because if we're being honest, uh, when we are our interest in something like God's will at these major life points and life transitions, um, the reason why we find it so paralyzing, we don't know how to act, we find ourselves constantly evaluating, it's because the underlying assumption beneath that is that um, our, our, our external circumstances determine our happiness. And if I make the wrong decision, then I will be unable to experience maximum joy and happiness. If I make the wrong decision, I will only be able to to experience mediocre joy and happiness, mid-joy. But what we really want more than anything is maximum joy. And the paralysis to evaluate all the present options and to think, what is the best? God, would you just tell me what is best? Because if you don't tell me what's best, then I will become very, very miserable. We place great pressure on ourselves. And, and all of a sudden, we, we start really, really racking our brains, you know, creating different uh, pro-con lists, reaching out to all our mentors, becoming very, very invested in God's will. And what we find here in this discussion, when, when the book tells us this is God's will for your life, what we have is a reframe. Again, this is one of those moments we sort of tilt our heads and we say, uh, it seems that the holy book is telling me I need to look at this and evaluate this from a completely different point of view. And the question becomes, are we interested in that? Are we interested to know God's will? I want to explain to you why it's worth it, but I'm not done yet explaining why it's hard. Because it's not only hard because it challenges our present ambitions, and not, it's not only hard because it challenges our underlying framework of how we evaluate decisions, but it's also hard because it challenges our default instincts when it comes to authority. Um, it's hard because praying your will be done feels a lot like losing freedom. If there's anything we as moderns long for more than anything else, it's freedom. Um, There's this thinker, W.K. Clifford. He said this, There is one thing in the world more wicked than the desire to to subject others to command. And the only thing more wicked than that is the will to obey. Does that make sense? He's saying something in our culture now is telling us the, the worst thing you could do The only thing worse than subjecting other people to your control is to obey someone and and be under their control. And we have to think through the course of history and be like, okay, like the instinct to not want to be controlled, where does that come from? We have to validate and we have to say, you know what? There's good reason why we don't like to be controlled. There's good reason to look at the course of human history and to see that Um, When we are subjected to the authority of others, we find ourselves suffocated and trapped. 
And so when, uh, when, when, when the book says you ought to pray, your will be done, it does feel a little bit like a trap. There's a phrase. Um, and whenever I say there's a phrase, it's usually because I'm still struggling to figure out how to say it. <laughs> um, heteronomy. And it's this idea of being subjected to others. You think about all that's wrong when it comes to domineering authority, patriarchy, the suppression of will. That's everything we're afraid of. So to pray this prayer to yield authority, that is not attractive to us at all. And so if one option we feel is to be subjected to the will of others that will ultimately make us feel trapped, that will make us feel as though we have no control, no agency over our lives, what we opt for instead of heteronomy is autonomy. We throw off all sorts of external power and we say, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to become masters of our own fate, captains of our own soul. We are going to do what we want. We are going to define our reality for ourselves. And the trouble with that is that is a godlike authority that will end up leave us feeling very, very burned out and exhausted. Are you waking up weary and exhausted this morning? Is it potentially because you refuse to live from a place of faith, trusting in Almighty God, but instead have said, there are a hundred variables in my life, and I will do my best to make sure that 85 of them at least I could be able to figure out on my own. And the exhaustion and the wear that comes from that, the anxiety. But you have to understand that is society's message to you. Throw off all sorts of authority from anybody else and define for yourself what you want, who you want to be, how you should live, how you should, how you should find happiness. And we find ourselves actually um, living under the weight of those commands and thinking, wow, this is actually pretty oppressive. And our mental health is actually not much better than it was if we were under the authority of someone else. And so the question becomes, what, how are we supposed to proceed? If we're told what we need to do is throw off all external authority, but we also find maintaining all internal authority exhausting, what, what is the option? What is the way forward? How are we supposed to experience this prayer of your will be done? Um, when we read the passage and it says, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, um, the thoughtful, critical, um, cynical reader would just look at the, the larger sort of paragraph and say, this is exactly what I find frustrating about Christianity. Because what follows after your sanctification are a bunch of, this is what I urge you then to do. And we think to ourselves, oh, see, this is the, so my choices are either I create reality for myself or I follow all of these extensive list of laws. And what I want to say is we are unable to Trust God's will, and the big reason is twofold. One, we do not know his heart, and two, we don't recognize his story. We don't, rec we, we don't know his heart, and two, we don't recognize his story. Matthew 23, I'll get there and I'll tell you the page number, because I'm on your team. 778 in the small Bibles. This is Jesus' heart as we try to figure out, okay, why 
Why is this worth it? Jesus, looking over a people and a city that he loves, trade in Jerusalem for New York, maybe. And it reads, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The Father's heart for you, God's heart for you is to lavish care. And what we find is that um, in order for us to know his will, he continues to send messengers to communicate his story. But it says, um, whenever I send someone to you, you, you show sort of a lack of interest, even threaten them. But there's this recognition, Lord, would you show us your story? I had a professor in college and he used to say, you know, whatever movie came on, his one rule was I have to surrender to the story. You ever watch a movie with somebody who doesn't surrender to the story? (laughs) They're like, oh, that can't be real. That doesn't even make sense. And you look over and you say, hey, are we going to watch this movie? (laughs) That's not my wife, actually. But the main premise, if you have to understand, in order to to be able to, to receive the message of the story is to be able to surrender to the story. And the, the difference between this external subjection of will is you have to understand the way that the Father, the way that the Father reveals to us His will is by wooing us into His story. Richard Bauckham, New Testament call, scholar, says this, too often, We think of authority either in relation to commands or laws which we must obey or in relation to doctrines that we must believe. Believe or obey, believe or obey. But he's, but, Bauckham says, the Bible is not primarily a book of timeless doctrines or a book of moral laws. It is primarily a story. And the total story is a meta-narrative. So meta-narrative means it gives meaning. That is, it sketches a narrative form, the meaning of all the world all, all of the world is portrayed in this story. And our role is to let the story define our identity and our relationship with God and to others. It's to read narratives of our own lives and of societies in which we live as narratives that take their meaning from the meta-narrative that overarches them all. To accept this meta-narrative as one within which we, we live to see the world differently and to live within it differently from the way we would if we inhabited another meta-narrative or framework of universal meaning. What is he saying? He's saying to properly understand the good, loving, lavish love of the Father, you have to understand that even the commands that are given are set within a larger story of redemption. To understand and to finally be able to say, your will be done, requires you you see that your place in the story as, as one whom the Father loves so deeply that he's moving heaven and earth to reconcile himself to so that you could be in intimate connection with him. That is the basis of trust and obedience needed to place your your trust and your future to him. And if all all of understanding God's will is primarily a story, the place where we get that clearest is the center of the story. 
Matthew 26, just a few chapters later, we, picture, we see a Jesus. And we have him in probably the most direct sort of conversation when it comes to this topic of the Father's will. And it's the place of his greatest pain. And within all modern categories, we'll say this is the problem with yielding to somebody's will. Because it, it leads to the place of pain. But we move to the center of the story, and this is where we find Jesus. Verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking him with him, Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sor- sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And here we find Jesus is both the power and the model of how we live this prayer out. I said this a few weeks ago, but C.S. Lewis has this quote in Screwtape that's haunted me ever since I've read it but how we move to a place of, of obedience in the face of our deepest pain. Um, screw tape Letters, uh, if you've never heard of the book, um, is C.S. Lewis's satirical take on demons in conversation about how they trick and tempt humans. And it's about an uncle writing to his, his nephew, demon, and he says this, he says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, your will be done, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to to vanish and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. There's a paradox that we find. True freedom, scripture seems to say, is somehow trusting the Father enough to be able to place your future into his hands. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're actually saying is, Lord, I trust you with my future. I trust my world, not only my life, but the lives of those around me. I trust all of those lives, my life and theirs, into your loving hands. And when we do that, when we say, I trust you with my future, our role then becomes to watch how he lines it up and he flexes his strength and power, moving us from death to life. Um, There's this promise we get in 2 Corinthians 3 about what God is actually doing. Um, It's the promise about when we talk about, you know, this this is the Lord's will for your life, your sanctification. We have to remember that this image of sanctification, we can easily move to like this Ned Flanders, very square Christian, you know, who all the people we resented as self-righteous because we were authentic and they weren't. <laughs> but what, what, when we see the word holiness, it should be exciting to us. us sanctification, syn- synonymous with holiness, it should be exciting to us because what that means is transformation. Mm-hmm. And there's this picture of this transformation that Paul gives um, in 2 Corinthians 3, and he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, true freedom. 
And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And what we find is that this is exactly sort of our mandate as a church. Because what it's saying is your holiness and we're being transformed from one image to another means that, that what God is doing as we yield our trust to him is making us more and more into the image of his son, which means we are on this journey of healing. Um, in that first, first Thessalonians passage, just a chapter later, um, Paul writes, this, this is what my will, uh, this is the Father's will. Find it here. Um, I have to flip. Okay, this is my Father's will. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks to all circumstances. This is what it looks like as we move from one image to another. If, if our present paralysis, as we analyze all the different options, come from, comes from believing that our external circumstances will ultimately dictate our future joy, what it says here is that does not have to be the case. What would it be like if your life was not dictated by how well you manage your circumstances? What if you could have a peace that transcends all of what's happening, good and bad in your life? What if you could be steady? What if in any moment you could remain tethered to the Father's heart, praying without ceasing? What would it look like if in any moment you could look with gratitude in your situation and say, I know that things are difficult, but this is the good things that the Lord has given me. This is the image of what the Lord is trying to build in us as he moves us from one image of glory to another. As we yield to his will and we say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. What he's doing is creating in us a fortitude that's firm and solid, that's, that's based upon a holiness that only he can give. And so this is what I ask you this morning. Will you place your trust into his loving hands? What makes it hard? My hope as a church is that uh, we, we just came fresh from We Want More. So, you know, of course, I'm invigorated. Um, by that, I mean, I, I really, I, I, I want us to really grow in our ability to do things like releasing prayer. We'll do a little bit right now. But um, my hope is that we become this army of healers able to lead people into the reality of the lives that they've been facing that causes them deep pain and wounds. And um, one of the things we have to be honest with ourselves with is the question, do I actually trust in his will? Um, do, do, I, I, do I believe that the Father's care for me is good? Or am I living from a place of seeing a hundred different variables out into my future and feeling the pressure to manage 85 today and the rest of the 15 tomorrow? Are we living from a place of faith? And so with heads bowed and eyes closed and prophesy your promise in the background. No altar calls. Just you and the Lord. And as we invite people to do during our retreat experiences, I just, would you, would you ask out loud or in your heart, Jesus, have I yielded my future to you? And the follow-up to that, 
Jesus, what is keeping me from placing my future into your hands? church that's in desperate need of your presence we've been told by society that what we really need is to throw off any sort of dependence on anything outside of ourselves and honestly we find it exhausting we're weary and burnt out from having to manage our lives as though we are CEOs of our future And we've been tempted to think that your will is not trustworthy. Help us to see that it is the gateway to true freedom. That what you want for us is true freedom. Help us to know you and love you as loving Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.